please be seated. <laughs> I have the fortunate honor of closing out this series on up study of the amazing letter to the Colossians. I'd like to, first of all, point you to this bulletin insert to enjoy um, a gracious letter from one of our vestry members. Chris has has summarized the study of Colossians. Take it home and read it. What a tribute to the character and faith of our vestry, the leadership of our rector. Truly, we are enjoying a season in this church in happy lockstep with staff and vestry and volunteers. And if you are new to our church, I invite you to step inside. We want to know you, and I just might have a plan for your life. (laughs) No, I don't, but God may. In this series, Alex has carefully driven home the reality that good theology offers us a new identity. Good theology is the word of the truth about God, and godly behavior grows out of us knowing this deep in our hearts. Turn with me, please, for a quick review in chapter 1 of Colossians, starting at verse 3. Here we have a ringside seat, as it were, as Paul tells the people of Colossae that he has heard about their faith in Christ Jesus. And he has heard of the love of all the saints and has heard even of their love in the spirit. It's clear to Paul that the behavior he's heard about from Epiphras is grounded in new identity. Sinners saved by grace, able to grow and mature because of their hope of the gospel, active in new ways of behaving and acting. In this letter, there's a preponderance of, of, why did I use that word? There are a bunch of folks sharing the news and their heart with each other. Usually, churches pray more vociferously when there's trouble. But in verse 9, following, Paul is redoubling his prayers because he's heard good things that are happening in this church. He wants to blow on the ember that's glowing. His heart is encouraged. In fact, the encouragement of our hearts is a theme in this letter. After you've taught someone something, have you ever had this experience? You watch them get it, and it gets you so excited you want to teach them some more. That's sort of, I think, what's going on with Paul, because in verse 15, There's a song of praise about Christ's identity. Look at verse 15. He's the image of the invisible God. He is before all things. In him all things hold together. He's the beginning, the firstborn of the dead. He is the head of the body. And in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This one, this God made flesh, out of his love, chose an atoning death to reconcile us so that we are above reproach, blameless, forgiven before him. We come to the the table welcoming the remembrance of this very fact in our lives every Sunday, don't we? 
Christ in us, the hope of glory. Okay, that's enough about reviewing. Last week we talked about gospel behavior in families and in society as people grow in Christ in mutual submission. Today we go outside, where the outsiders are. I don't know how you would uh, define the word outsiders, but for our purposes, they're people who are not in our church. Paul asks for prayer for himself in verse 3 of chapter 4, for himself and his companions. No one in their right mind would go on a trip with Paul without travel insurance. (laughs) Things always happen to him. Sample some of Acts and you'll see. And yet his prayer is not for God to protect him or make him successful or give him a really good sermon. His prayer is that God would open a door so that he can talk about the mystery of Christ to them. They become receptive of what Paul has to give. He's preaching and traveling, being whipped and beaten and shipwrecked, thrown into chains, and yet he asks for prayer for others so that God would have a door. Makes you think about that part of John where Christ says, I stand at the door and knock. Paul's not concerned with his preaching. He remembers when he preached to the Corinthians and he says, I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit that your faith might not rest in the wisdom or preaching of men, but in the power of God. Take a look at verse 5, chapter 4. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders. I love this sentence. I could have preached the whole thing on this one phrase. This is sort of countercultural when we really look around at how people do church. We like being here with the people that we know. Paul writes, he's caring about outsiders as much as he is about Christians. My experience is that God has a light touch with outsiders. He leads with love. He takes his time. Be wise in the way you act, he says. Let your life be filled with activity that springs directly from your identity in Christ. Make the best use of your time. Alex pointed out in adult form that phrase is really the word redeem. Redeem the time that's been captured by something else. But I love the command to be awake. Because when you're paying attention and you're in Christ you'll be given all kinds of wisdom and information about how you might behave. We're told to use speech which is uh, seasoned with salt, something that we might think is attractive or witty, something maybe even funny. But have you tasted oatmeal without salt in it? Salt is really an important Um, spice, isn't it? Have you ever had salt-free tomato juice? 
or salt-free spaghetti sauce? It shouldn't be allowed. But why all these directives, anyway? Paul says we should know that it is necessary to be able to answer each one, each outsider, each person who asks a question. But, you know, frankly, sometimes we just need to dial it back a little and be patient. Easy does it with outsiders. Have you ever tasted something with a whole lot of salt in it? It's too much, isn't it? Dick Lucas writes in his commentary, I'm going to read this twice, direct assault on entrenched apathy is seldom successful. Are you getting it? Direct assault on entrenched apathy is seldom successful. I said this last night and I asked, does anybody know what apathy is? And Ann Stankis just said, I don't know, but I don't care. Because <laughs> that's what apathy is. Maybe we're to look for openings rather than bulldozing in. It'd be different from what Paul is doing in terms of preaching. Only the Spirit knows the who and the when and the why of people's readiness for conversion. Most of us have histories of many people who have said one piece of our, our way. Um, and so I think we need to be awake and aware and informed and able to answer a question. We may just have one small shot. Friday night I was watching Grand Torino. How many of you like Clint Eastwood's Grand Torino? Oh, cool. A lot of people today. Clint Eastwood plays an ex-Marine, of course, recently widowed, ugly face filled with bigotry and resentments at the beginning of the movie. He has this amazing 1960s car. He becomes involved with his neighbor because the little boy tries to steal his car. He tries to prevent the escalation of the gang violence that's in his neighborhood, um, which is resulting in persecution of his neighbors. Finally, there's a brutal assault on a teenage daughter, and it pushes him over the edge. We know what he's going to do now, don't we? We've seen his movies. But Walt surprises us. Walt tells the little brother of the girl to just rest and think for the entire day. He says, come back at 4 o'clock. Little brother doesn't understand. He's ready for action. We don't either. We expect him to blow all the perpetrators out of the water. He does go over there, and everyone does have guns. We think it's going to be a make-my-day kind of shootout. We've seen the movies. Except Walt has figured out that if he carries a gun, the perpetrators will not be held accountable. He knows he'll be killed, and he knows he's going to die soon anyway. He knows the only way he can protect his friends is to die for them. His beloved family will be safe. And that's the way it works out. What astonished me about this movie was Walt's wisdom in waiting for the plan. We are all so reactive these days, waiting for wisdom, walking 
and wisdom, which is Jesus Christ, is a godly thing. But it's counterintuitive, isn't it? Especially in issues of justice. God's desired behavior for us is to exhibit the fruits of his spirit. But one thing is sure. We are made to be a part of a body, connected, supportive, loving, and encouraging with each other. And this is all through the letter to the Colossians. Now, I attended a big church for quite a long time. It taught me well. But looking back at the what I thought about this church was that I thought the Holy Spirit, his main address was Frederick Street in Sewickley. He didn't go anywhere else because he was there. It's where I came to believe and witness the power of God's Spirit to do amazing things. Eventually, I became aware of something called the Missions Committee. Sort of odd people, I thought, to myself. I used to think, who would want to go to Central America? But now I realize that the Holy Spirit is often waiting for us on mission trips. It's where God's love and power will be experienced, not just by the people who are receiving help, but by the people who are bringing it. As I moved through seminary days, I had even more exposure to the stories of those who had gone outside. I noticed how alive they were. They had experienced the power of God on their mission. They were filled with newfound faith and delight and humor that made you want to hang out with them. Wonderful stories. Slugging through my classes, my heart was so encouraged by these people. And I began to wonder what that would be like to have that kind of joy. We have folks here at Christ Church who are also going out. They come back with great stories and with shining faces as well. Twice a year we hear the amazing stories that take place in a maximum security prison through Kairos. And each week we have dramas in our Bible studies that we laugh about or cry about. Sometimes I'm in the middle of it. Then there are those who are tutoring and doing initiatives in the north side and other parts of our city. There are grateful hearts serving in the homeless ministry. They love to go there. Tuesdays in the women's group we hear about answers to prayer to those outside who don't even know they're being prayed for by us. And our kids, ask our kids to tell you stories about the outreach trips they've taken to friendships in the heat of the summer in New Orleans. They can't wait to go, and now more kids want to go. That's about what I have to say today, except to point you towards all of these greetings that Paul is talking about. Greetings to each of them from all of these wonderful people who are helping with him. Tychicus is, Paul is sending this man, I don't want to say his name again wrong, in order to encourage their hearts in the ministry that they're in. Epaphras is struggling in prayer on their behalf. 
struggling in prayer. What a, what a statement. So that they will stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Epiphras is taking care of three cities all in the same area like some of us today. And the church at Laodicea gets special attention. Look up Revelation 3 for more information on that particular church and why Paul might be focusing on that. No wonder Epaphras is struggling. And then there's a final command for Archippus. Paul says, See that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. Strong words. Paul is ever the masterful minister, in chains or not. Hey, Archippus, he's talking to you. God's church should be in the business of bringing outsiders in, not just going out. These greetings show how vital communication is, sharing the news, prayer and thanksgiving, corporately available in trouble and in hope. That is the way the Lord and his body are designed to work. John 15, Jesus tells us to abide in his love and to keep his commandments. Why? So that his joy will be in us and so that our joy may be full. May it be so in your lives as well. Amen.